Welcome to Experiencing Motherhood Single and Black. I am your host, Kim, and I'm so excited that you have decided to tune in and listen. If this is your very first episode, welcome. If you are part of the community here, welcome back. I really appreciate each and every one of you for taking out time to tune in and listen. If you have not checked out the Single Moms Level Up Challenge, please pause this, take a moment to do so, singleblackmotherhood.com backslash level up. We are going to be preparing for the next season of our lives. So we're going to be digging into mindset, figuring out what type of mindset do you have and how can we work on that mindset to get you to where you need to be to move forward. We're then going to be digging into time and figuring out how you are spending it and what are your thoughts about it and how can you develop a schedule so that you can make better use of your time and then we're going to get into money because that is one of the biggest issues for single moms that we know of so we're going to be looking at how you're spending your money what do you think about money and if you don't have a budget developing one and so I'm going to be sharing some tips and tricks that I've used to get me where I am today and that I know to work. So definitely check that out. Again, the website is single black motherhood backslash level up. If you missed out on last week's episode, I got a chance to chat with Dee about her domestic violence story. She really got transparent and shared a lot I mean, I think it was helpful for a lot of moms and they could relate, um, but not only relate, but know that the domestic violence hotline is available. October is also breast cancer month. And this week I have the opportunity to chat with Dr. Alexia about her breast cancer journey. So if you are not familiar with breast cancer or you're interested to know her story and how it may affect you, then you definitely want to stay tuned. If you have been listening and you have not shared this podcast with your single mom, friend, family member, or anyone you feel that needs to listen to these episodes, please do so. Also, if you've been finding them helpful, take a moment to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Apple Podcasts, you can leave a comment on SoundCloud, or you can just simply shoot me a DM. I really love to hear that these episodes are effective and that you find value in them. All right, so let's get into this episode. Hi, Dr. Alexia. Welcome to Experiencing Motherhood Single and Black. I am so excited to have you on today to talk about your breast cancer journey. How are you? I am doing really well, all things considered. I'm tired, but that's just kind of my normal state these days. Um, But otherwise, I'm hanging in there. Thank you for asking. Awesome. You are welcome. Can you take a moment to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I am Dr. Alexia. I am a mom, of course. Um, I'm a triple board certified infectious disease specialist. Um, I am boarded and trained in internal medicine and pediatrics and then subspecialty training in infectious diseases. And I am an author, a speaker, a coach. Yes, um, awesome. And yeah. (laughs) And so, and of course, the topic of our conversation today, I'm a breast cancer survivor and thriver. So, you know, that's just what my life looks like these days. Oh, wow. I mean, you must be busy, Dr. Alexi. You have a lot going on. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, So how old is your daughter? She is seven years old. She's in the second grade, and she is a very active school age kid. Wow. So you're having to do all of that and keep up with your daughter's schedule. <laughs> oh my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. So tell me, uh, when were you actually first diagnosed with Brit's cancer? So I was diagnosed on April 3rd of 2018. I am 
still in the midst of my treatment, but I'm on the end of the active phase of my treatment. Um, but really, my breast cancer journey is the, like in reality starts two years ago. Um, and that's because I found a mass in my left breast about two years ago, um, brought it to my primary doctor's attention, which my primary doctor happens to be my partner in practice and business um, and is one of my best friends. And so I brought it to her attention. She got a mammogram and an ultrasound and they like I was given like a professional courtesy and given like a preliminary read from their radiologist while I was there at the imaging. And he was like, oh, it just kind of looks like a fibroadenoma, which is a benign, not cancerous mass. And I like skipped out the door thinking, oh, okay, great. It's benign. I can go on with my life. Mm-hmm. And a day or two later, my partner slash primary care doctor got back the formal read of this breast imaging and it showed concerning findings. So um, in radiology, they kind of always bounce the ball back to your doctor's court and they say, correlate clinically, which just means I'm not in charge of what you do, but here's what I suggest. So the suggestion was to repeat the imaging in three to six months or get a biopsy right away. And I was like, all right, so let's just repeat the image in three months. Like, let's just wait. We'll be conservative and do it again in three months. And she was like, absolutely not. You're a young black woman. At the time, I was 35 years old. She's like, you're 35 years old, and breast cancer is, you know, much higher risk in Black women. So you have to get a biopsy now. Like, you need to know what this is. We're not sitting on this for three months. So so I got the biopsy, like, the next week. She went with me, held my hands through it. And um, the biopsy showed that I had not cancer, but, like, a precancerous lesion or a lesion that was, like predictor of high high probability of me getting cancer in the future. So for the last two years, I've been like very aggressively screened for cancer. So every three months, I was having some form of breast imaging. And then um, in August of last year, finally was to the point where um, my oncologist and breast surgeon was like, you know what, you've been doing good so far, let's face it six months. And then in that six month window is when things kind of evolved and when that led to my diagnosis of the breast cancer. Oh, wow. So how did you feel when you got that news? Um, kind of talk about your feelings a little bit. So when I, so, okay, so I'm a doctor, right? I'm not a cancer doctor, nor am I a breast surgeon. However, I know trends of abnormal labs and abnormal results. And I've had lots of breast biopsies and I've had lumpectomies where they've removed other other tumors that were either benign or like these kind of predictive lesions. And so those results you get back in two days. So when I had the biopsy that ultimately diagnosed my breast cancer, I had it on a Wednesday and by Friday, like I didn't hear from anybody. And like nine to five hours where the cancer center is open and you're getting your calls from the nurses with your pathology reports. Like when five o'clock Friday hit, I was like, oh, snap. And like, this is not good. And, you know, of course, my sisters were aware that I was having the procedures, but I hadn't let anybody else in my family in on it. So my sister called and I was like, on Friday, like, so did you get the results? And I'm like, no, this is not this is not a good sign that they haven't called me yet. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, it's a holiday weekend. It was like right around Easter, you know, maybe teeth in a spring break, maybe they're short staff. And so I'm like, yeah, maybe. So I tried to like go with that. And so Monday came and went and still no call. And I'm like, oh, this is cancer because, you know, if it's benign, it's benign. They call you and they tell you it's benign. This is not right. a cancerous lesion. We're moving on. We'll keep watching the same way we have. But I know like with with cancer, they do, once they diagnose it's a cancerous lesion, then they do other testing. Like they want to see if it's hormone sensitive or if it has certain kinds of receptors. And so when it was like five days from the time I had the test and there wasn't a call, like it it just became a matter of, okay, once I see the cancer center's number, I know they're going to tell me I have breast cancer. 
Um, and, you know, somewhere in the back of my mind, I still was like holding out hope, but I do this every day and I make these phone calls and I know if a certain test that I send out doesn't come back in a certain time frame that there's a positive result, like positive in the medical world is never good. Positive means we found something. So I was like, I know they found something and they're working it up and I'm just waiting for somebody to call me and tell me I have cancer. So it was crazy. Um, I was at my desk, I was in my office, I was in the middle of patient care when I got that call and I was just like, okay, so I knew they were going to tell me I have cancer, I have breast cancer. Wow. So in the middle of that patient care, like, did you take a moment or did you just have to pull yourself together really quickly and then deal with your emotions later? How did that work out? Yep. So, I mean, it was one of those things where it was like, I I don't know I don't know how old you are so I don't know if you've ever oh. seen the movie Glory. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but twenty seven. Okay, so maybe you saw Glory, but probably not. So anyway, in the movie Glory, like there's this one scene where the guy like cries one single tear. So me and my friends always joke like y'all, and then they cry the one Glory tear. So I like mm-hmm. literally cried like one Glory tear, wiped my face, and was like, okay pull it together. You have to go see patients. There's people waiting for you. I had four patients in exam rooms, people in the waiting room. And I'm like, and I had 17 more patients to see apart from the people who were already there. So I'm like, all right, you just got to hold it together. You just got to make it through the day. And once you make it through the day, then you can figure out how you feel about it and what your game plan is. Um, And the reality is, is that, you know, beyond those that like first little shedding of tears and like some other moments of like frustration. Um, I didn't really get too crazy or too emotional. And I remember my sister asking me like, so how do you feel? And I was like, I don't really know how to feel. I was like, you know, all I know is I have cancer. I don't know what stage it is. I don't know. You know, I know I'm going to have to have surgery, but I don't know what surgery is going to look like. And I just got really scientific and I was like I don't have enough data to feel anything at the moment like I need to know where I'm at and then I can have a feeling about it because you know what if I only need a lumpectomy like that's easy peasy so what if I need a mastectomy and chemo and radiation and all of these things like that's a whole different ballgame and that's a whole different set of feelings so I can't really feel anything. I just know I need to go to this appointment. I need to be supported in this appointment. I need other people listening um, to what it is the surgeon is going to tell me. And then I can decide how I feel. And, you know, that was like my initial like processing of it. Like I got annoyed. I got very briefly sad. And I just was like, you know what? Like, don't fall apart. There's not any good reason to fall apart. You don't even know what's happening yet. You know? So I was um, probably unusually rational about it, (laughs) but that's just me and how I show up in my world. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm glad you didn't get too chucked up about it, you know, in the middle of all of that patient care. Yeah, but it was so crazy because immediately after I, you know, got off the phone, I wiped away my little glory tear and like pulled myself together. I'm going through the next patient's labs and everything is like normal, 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 normal. And then I get to the last page of his labs and his labs suggest that he has prostate cancer. So I remember like at that point, I I really got angry. I'm just like effing cancer. And I remember like slamming my fist on my desk because here I just got dropped this bomb and I'm like choosing to continue my work day and now I have to go drop a very similar bomb in somebody or the same bomb like I don't care what cancer you have nobody wants to hear that they have cancer Mm -hmm. yeah and so I'm like and now I gotta go drop this bomb on somebody else like you gotta be kidding me god like this is not really happening right now so it ended up being that my patient was the first person that I shared with that I had cancer because I got off the phone, reviewed his labs, walked into the exam room. And once I told him about his possible diagnosis of prostate cancer, he was like trying to write his obituary in the room. And I was like, and he's like, Oh my God, my kids. And I don't know how my kids are going to live without me. And I'm like, listen, stop. Like you don't even, all you know is you might have cancer, you know, even though the probability is high, 
it could also be something else. And so, like, don't write your obituary. Like, right, don't do that. Like, I'm like, be positive. Like, this is not your great grandfather's prostate cancer. This is 2018 prostate cancer that's very treatable that people do quite well with. You know, let's just mm-hmm. go see the urologist. Let's go get the data and then let's figure it out from there. And then he was like, doctor. Oh my God, like after more conversation, he's like, you're just so, he's like, how could you be so calm and so positive and so hopeful about this? And I was like, you know why? I was like, because I just got diagnosed with breast cancer. And the same way I'm telling you to have faith in God and have faith in science and have faith in medicine, I have to have that own faith for myself. So if I don't have it for me, how am I going to have it for you? You know, like I have it for me. So of course I have it for you, you know? So it, it was like a very crazy thing that, you know, I just hung up the phone for my own cancer diagnosis, flipped through some labs, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to go deliver this same kind of news to someone else. And like, you know, like help them work through their feelings as quickly as you can in a 20-minute appointment slot um, without him feeling like, oh my God, this lady told me I had prostate cancer and handed me a bunch of papers and sent me out of the door. Because that's what it feels like to a lot of people. Yes, exactly. I was just about to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the times, like the appointments are so quick and some Mm -hmm. physicians, they just don't take the time out to explain. Like you said, they hand you those results and send you on your way. Yeah, so I'm like... So I, I have a hard time doing medicine that way. So I'm like constantly behind in my schedule. But my patients are all like, I don't care. You're worth the wait because I know you're going to answer every single one of my questions and tell me every side effect and, you know, and tell me you're there for me. And so I don't mind waiting. Oh, or they'll good. be like, you know, somebody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can tell yeah. that you're really passionate about medicine because, you know, some physicians I find, Um, they are just there to be physicians and that's it. And then some are like you and they're really passionate about what they do. So um, we appreciate you guys (laughs) that take out the time to explain everything. I really appreciate that. I know. And I'm sure everybody else does. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. The last thing I want is my patients like going home with the same questions they walked through the door with and then Mm -hmm. Googling them and like, scaring the crap out of themselves you know and you know it's just it's unnecessary and really at the end of the day that kind of makes the most work for me if I leave somebody's questions unanswered and then they start talking to their family friends neighbors and they do the google search it brings up even more questions than they started with and a lot of fear and anxiety and that's very hard to fix over the telephone so yeah people write a bad review in a second (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so I just find it best for me and for the patient to like square it away right there firsthand Um, and it just establishes a much better rapport and a much better doctor-patient relationship Um, and just a much better trust is established that way yes I totally agree now how did you tell your daughter about that because she's seven right So you got diagnosed Mm -hmm. in April. And so how do you explain that to your kid? So that was crazy. So she was, it was spring, like Easter time. So she was away in, we live in New York and she was away in Williamsburg, Virginia with my dad and her cousins for spring break. So I knew I didn't want to tell my dad over the phone. So I flew down there. Um, to like spend a long weekend with them you know we were like on the playground me her and her four cousins and we were just like hanging out on this like lawn chair and she was like laying on my chest or whatever and I was like Kennedy you know mommy needs to talk to you and we like we've been through talking to and life events and all of that stuff with her dad and I divorcing and us moving to a different town and all this stuff so you know, we've had lots of talks that I never thought I would have with a four-year-old or a five-year-old or a then six-year-old. So she's six years old, six and a half years old. And, you know, I'm saying, you know, mommy just had a procedure. You remember I had the procedure and mommy 
got diagnosed with cancer. And of course she's like, well, what is cancer? And I'm like, well, cancer is not good. Like it's a big deal. And mommy's going to have to have big surgery and they're going to cut my breast off. And then they're going to have to give me medicines and the medicines will make mommy very sick and they'll make my hair fall out. And, you know, things will just be different, you know? And she, well, she immediately started crying. So I knew that even though she doesn't get like what cancer is, like that cell can grow out of control and consume your body if the cancer is not treated or, you know, managed quickly enough. Like she doesn't understand it on that level, but she understands that it's a big, bad, life-changing disease. So she, you know, immediately started crying and she's like, well, what does that mean? Are you going to be able to go to work? Um, and I'm like, no, when I have the surgery, I'll stay home for several weeks and then, you know, maybe I'll get to go back to work when, um, I'm healed from surgery and maybe I'll be able to work when I start chemo. And she's like, well, how am I going to get to and from school? I'm like, what do you mean? How are you going to get to and from school? She's like, well, if you can't go to work, who's going to take me to school? Because. I drop her off to school every morning on my way to work normally. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it kind of <laughs> cracked me up that we went from crying and her understanding like, okay, this is really bad. And then her like, oh, so how am I going to get to school again? <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, the mind of a six-year-old. Right? They <laughs> act so <laughs> So, but um, she's, She's been amazing through this whole thing. Normally, she would like do summer camp for half the summer and travel half the summer, but I intentionally kept her home with me because I just kind of felt like, you know what, I need this kid to get me through the day. And that's like a lot to put on a six-year-old or a seven-year-old, but she is such um, a compassionate kid. Um, And I think she's just a very intuitive kid. And so some days she would be like, you know what, mommy, just come lay in my bed. Like you lay in bed and watch TV and I'm going to play with my dollhouse. You don't need to play with me, but just come, just come sit in the bed and watch TV. Just hang out in my room. Or there'll be other days where she'll like really push. Like, you know what, mommy, you've been in this bed all day. You need to get up. You need to get up and put some clothes on and let's go to the beach and watch the sunset because you haven't been out of bed all day (laughs) (laughs) she is such a sweetheart like and a big part of it is just like that's who she is and who she was going to be but I think also um her witnessing and listening to me take care of other people also adds to how compassionate she is Mm -hmm. and how she just kind of gets certain things about how people feel or when people need a little extra push because even her friend's parents will um, approach me like before I knew a lot of the moms in my community they'd be like are you Kennedy's mom I just want to say Kennedy is the most sweet and caring kid I have ever met like Uh one mom um, told me at a we were at a birthday party, but she was referencing field day. I didn't get to go to field day that particular year. And she was like, you know, Kennedy is just an amazing kid. And she's so sweet. And she's so compassionate. She's like, my daughter fell during one of the races. And Kennedy went back and got her and held her hand and went through the rest of the race with her. And the whole time she was telling my daughter, like, you can do it. You can do it. Like, come on, you can do it. And went to the finish line with her and was not concerned about winning the race or anything for herself, just concerned that her friend also got across the finish line. And I was like floored when she told me this because, you know, as a single mom, especially someone with a very busy and time consuming career, in my mind, I'm always like, oh my God, am I doing enough? Am I spending enough time? It's too much activity. Am I messing this kid up? And so to hear that was like, one of the most validating things um, that someone could tell me because of course your family is going to tell you you're doing a great job Mm -hmm. Um, and your close friends are going to be like oh you're such a good mom you're doing great and cheer you on but for a total stranger to approach me and tell me that I'm like oh my god I'm doing this right yes (laughs) that's just that little reassurance right yes 
Yep. <laughs> so for those moms who are out there that may um, have just gotten diagnosed, um, how do you recommend that they find a doctor? Because, you know, like we just talked about, everybody um, is not as friendly and willing to, you know, discuss those results and answer all their questions. So what are some mm-hmm. tips that you can give them um, when it comes down to choosing a doctor? So one thing that's helpful is having a great relationship with your primary care doctor or your OBGYN. Like these are typically the people who are ordering screening mammograms, ultrasounds, breast MRIs or whatever for a woman who might have a breast cancer diagnosis. So like for our practice, and I find this to be common practice, I'm going to refer to who is going to take great care of my patients, who's going to stay in communication with me, and who um, I get positive feedback from my patients. So, like, in my referral list, there isn't anybody on there who consistently gets bad reviews from my patients. Because I don't want to send my patients to a doctor who isn't going to make them feel good. Now, that being said, for some things, it matters more than others. So, for instance, if there was a surgeon who was like an excellent, excellent, excellent surgeon, but was not that warm and fuzzy, I would be like, you know what? You need excellent surgery more than you need warm and fuzzy. Just go to this guy and just know that your face-to-face experience may not be like it is in my office, but your outcome is going to be the best you can get. But like for someone who... But if you need both, which I'm someone who needs both, like you just have to ask for that, you know, Mm -hmm. who is a great surgeon, but is going to give me a little bit more face time because you know how I am. I have a lot of questions or whatever. And your doctor can usually point you to that person. And then some people have other preferences. Some people, um, especially women, may have a preference for another woman doctor or another female doctor or female doctor. And so, you know, you can ask that as well like you have a great female doctor if it's not available it's not available um but you can ask those kinds of questions like whatever it is that's going to meet your needs you ask your doctor specifically i don't ever tell my patients like go look go after your insurance company who you should see that's not the way um ideally not the way patients should be referred for specialist care Um, so, you know, ask explicitly for what you need. A lot of patients are like, I don't care. I don't need all this face time. Like I just need to get the job done. I need to get in and out in a good time frame. And I can tell you that. I can also tell you who you probably are going to sit in the waiting room for an hour. And the doctor's always behind like me because they operate the way that I do, but you're going to get the same type of care. But at the end of the day, no one's ever going to refer their patients to someone who isn't going to take the best care of them possible. Um, And then I always recommend when it is something major, like for me, you know, being told that um, I had to have a mastectomy. Well, not being told, but given mastectomy is one of my surgical options, and then being told that I had to have chemo and radiation. Like if I felt in any way unsettled with that, I would have definitely gotten a second opinion. Um, Even if it's just to see that the care is in alignment with what I've already been told. And if it so happens that the second opinion person is a better fit for you, then great. However, when you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis, you can't let weeks and months go by. So if you're facing a cancer diagnosis and you're being told the soonest you can get, an appointment for a second opinion is six weeks. That is far too long, and you like you can't wait. Time is not on your side for um, most cancers, and so you need to get things going really quickly. So I wouldn't necessarily delay the initiation of treatment just for the sake of getting a second opinion, because you know time is not on your side. Time is like lifetime. So. Um, it's very easy for me to say that because I have two very good friends who happen to be oncologists who I spent my pathology and was like, what would you do? And they told me the exact same plan and it was in alignment with the plan my oncologist had. And so it's like, okay, great. That's what she's recommending. That's what I'm going with. Good. 
I'm sorry. Um, That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dr. Alexia, are you currently practicing or are you still kind of, since you're in that phase of still undergoing treatment, are you kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, taking it easy? What does your journey yeah, look so, like right now? Yeah. So, currently I'm out on medical leave. But after I had my mastectomy and initiated chemotherapy, I did return to work briefly. Um, but I realized that. Um, it wasn't in my best interest to be at work um, because I'm an infectious disease doctor and the chemotherapy wipes out your immune system. And so one of the things that I had to do was avoid sick people. It's very hard to avoid sick people when 75 to 80% of your patients are sick people with mm-hmm. like, very contagious or communicable diseases. So that um, part was difficult. And then like the amount of fatigue I had, I had chemo brain, which you get like very like forgetful. You have trouble with word finding and recall and you just get kind of scatterbrained. Like I was like, okay, this is not going to be good. If this is going to progress as my chemo goes on um, and my oncologist had warned me that the side effects are like cumulative. It's not like they just start and they just stay where they started. Like they get worse and worse and worse over time so I was like okay this is dangerous and then the other thing was I was like oh my god when I take great care of other people I do not take care of me I remember being in my office for eight hours not drinking anything not stopping to use the bathroom not even sitting down at my desk to rest like just running 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 on my feet for eight consecutive hours and I was like all right I'm supposed to be working part-time. This is not what part-time work looks like. Um, I'm supposed to be drinking a minimum of three liters of fluid in a day. The day is, a third of it is gone. I still need to get eight hours of sleep. I'm not going to drink three liters of fluid when I get home. And I should be eating like protein-rich, super healthy meals. And I have not eaten a thing today. Like all of this is bad. And so... I stopped working, I think, after my second or third dose of chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but other factors that also um, became problematic was like my white count was too low to get my dose of chemo. So my chemo schedule had to be shifted by a week. And so I was like working every other week, like working leading up to my chemo, but not working for a week after. So alternating weeks. And what happened was my staff had to move a whole week's worth of patients. So we needed to bring them in a week early, which, of course, we couldn't accommodate everybody. So the patients were upset that their appointments were being moved. Administration was upset because I was moving patients' appointments. And then it made, like, several hours of unnecessary labor for my office staff because they're calling and rescheduling over a hundred appointments for a week. So it just was like not good for every anybody. It wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for the patients. And it wasn't good for the office to have all of these crazy issues going on as a result of me being on chemo. So there was like so many signs saying, listen, chick, just go take your disability insurance and use it and go sit down somewhere and take care of you. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> hardest things that uh is like uh, moms or single moms uh-huh. just you know making that decision to take a step back it's like listen you are going through something serious right now and you have yeah. the means to take a seat just do it yeah. <laughs> like, yeah it was so hard for me but I needed to have that experience because there is no way in heck if my surgeon or my oncologist or my plastic surgeon or even the physical therapist, if any one of those, or my primary doctor, if any one of those people just said, all right, you have breast cancer, you're having surgery, you're having chemo, you're having radiation, you cannot work, just fill out the papers now. Like if anyone had done that to me, I would have been so bitter and so angry with them for like taking away my livelihood. Whereas 
um, when I went in and I realized that I was being unreasonable to myself and unreasonable to my body and unreasonable to the people around me, um, I, it was an easier pill to swallow. Um, so I was grateful that I went in, I worked, I gave it my absolute best shot and was like, okay, like, this is crazy. It's okay to like sit down. It's okay to take a break. And it's not taking a break. It's like, just, it's okay to go be a patient and take mm-hmm. care of you and make yourself the priority for a change. And I had yes. not really ever done that. Wow. So it's a shame, but it took cancer for me to like really prioritize myself over everything and everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you finally learned and not in this way, because um, I don't, you know, wish that anybody would have to go through this. But sometimes, you know, it takes weird situations for us to like kind of wake uh-huh. up. <laughs> it's yep. like, you know, giving yourself that permission. And I hope if anyone um is listening and you haven't given yourself permission to sit down take a break and do what you need to do for you then I hope this is like a wake-up call for you absolutely absolutely we are no good to anybody else if we are not at least being good to ourselves you know um and it's something that I have always told my patients like if they cancel appointments or they no show or whatever I'm like listen you're not any good to your husband, you're not any good to your wife, you're not any good to your kids, you're not any good to your employer, your employer will replace you tomorrow if you drop dead today. Take care of self. Yes. You know. (laughs) So take care of self and then and only then can you take care of give important to other people. You can't pour from an empty cup. And I tell if I see 20 patients in a day, I bet that conversation comes up in 10 to 15 of them and yet I did not receive that for myself until I was like at my breaking point wow yep so yes ladies who are listening take care of yourself it's okay to prioritize yourself you are not any good to your children if you are um broken physically mentally emotionally spiritually you're just not any good to anybody else yeah take care of you and then you can pour from your filled cup yes I totally agree now Dr. Alexia um tell us a little bit about your support system because you're going through treatment and some days Mm -hmm. we're really tired and you may not be able to um you know function like you would normally as a mother so who kind of steps in and helps you out so my my village right it has been amazing so Mm -hmm. my village is so many people so like my sisters and my best friend always went to chemo with me um and would stay with me for the 24 hours after chemo but like my stepmom and my dad moved pretty much moved into my house um after i had surgery um my Mom was like coming and going, which my mom had a lot going on. My stepdad um, was like an active kidney failure and ultimately got diagnosed with kidney cancer and had surgery wow. like in the midst of and overlapping all of this. So my mom was like coming and going back and forth, back and forth. Um, and then just like my community was amazing. So my office manager at the time set up like a meal train um and people like other doctors from other practices people from the community patients um just so many people like contributed to this meal train so they would have like scheduled deliveries of cooked food to my house gift cards where we could just order from a restaurant and have food delivered or picked up at the house um my stepmom was of course here my stepmom and dad were here um, cooking and cleaning and just kind of waiting on me hand and foot, getting Kennedy prepared for school, doing homework with her. And um, one of her friend's parents agreed that for the six weeks after I had surgery to pick her up every morning and take her to school and then drop her home every day. So when I tell you like 
community, family, friends, village, church, like everybody just jumped in and like lended a hand wherever they could, you know, wow, that a is friend's amazing. mom. Yeah. Like, you know, one of the girls in her dance class, her mom would pick her up faithfully and drop her back off for dance class. Um, when I was like too sick and too weak to go. And then I'm in a relationship and my relationship is long distance. And so my honey was here for surgery and like two weeks after that, and then back and forth between New York and Atlanta. Um, as often as he could be and like doing the same things like you know taking Kennedy to dance class and drop-offs and pickups for all kinds of things she was in dance she was in baton she had Girl Scouts wow Uh, yeah and she never missed a beat because of this like and it's only that so many other people were supporting us that she didn't miss a beat you know um so yeah so I mean it was truly truly amazing and it's like one of those things like I don't do what I do expecting anything in return Mm -hmm. um I just do what I do and show up how I show up because I love what I do for a living I'm very passionate about what I do and about taking care of my patients like I don't see them as medical record numbers. I see them as people with family that love them. And I want to give them the best care that I can possibly give them. Um, And, you know, be very humanistic and very compassionate about it. And so I have a relationship with all of my patients, you know? And so, and then the same thing, like with Kennedy's friendship, like I don't want to just be, some random person passing by, um, you know, I want to know the, the moms at dance class and baton and Girl Scouts and all of these things because that's our community. That's who's in our immediate vicinity. Those are her friends. So if this is her best friend, then I need to be friends with her best friend's parents, you know? And so I have built all of these bonds and relationships and a lot of them really took off and got even stronger since this has been going on. Um, but I just know that all of those people were agreeable to show up and do for us because of how I show up for other people. Um, and so I'm just grateful that this is how I was raised or this is who God made me to be because when I needed help, I needed help. And it was just given to me so freely and so wonderfully. So I'm like so grateful for that. Yes, what a blessing. And I like that you said, because of the way you show up for other people, they show up for you. I think that that's very important. Sometimes we don't show up when we need to, and then we expect them uh-huh. to be there when we need them. So yes, I'm yeah. glad you said that. Yeah, I'm very big on reciprocal relationships. Like it can't be just that you're taking and not giving it needs to be you know a little bit of both so right um yeah and like you said doing it not with the expectation of anything in return but actually just doing it because of the person that you are yeah yep I'm just I'm like I don't know how I got this way (laughs) I just am grateful that I am this way though (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I just want to ask a, a few more questions about, you know, Absolutely. Cancer and, you know, just, I guess, taking the necessary steps to um, keep up with your maternal health and making sure uh-huh. you're scheduling, you know, those mammograms. So everyone is not familiar with, you know, what age they should start getting these mammograms. Uh-huh. So can you just talk about, you know, um, awareness and being aware of like yes. the age you should be, um, when you should get your checkups, um, how you can perform a self check, um, just a few mm-hmm. things that you would recommend. Yep. So, um, just like the numbers, period. So, one in eight women will get breast cancer in their lifetime, which, um, that's to me, that's like a shocking statistic, like one in eight, yes. because you think about it, you go out to dinner to celebrate a birthday or you go out 
to a club or a lounge or dancing with your friends, you go to a concert, there's probably like eight or 10, sometimes 15 people out with you. So it's like somebody in your immediate circle is going to get breast cancer. cancer. And I was that person for my circle, right? So um, one in eight women and women of all ages are at risk for breast cancer. So I think, you know, a lot of people have this myth and believe that breast cancer is a disease of older women. And that's simply not true. Okay. So the the best and the earliest way to detect breast cancer is to know your breast. So you mentioned like self-breast examination. So self-breast examination should be done on a monthly basis. And we should be doing this at any age. I personally started doing self-breast examinations when I was 20. And by the time I was 21, I was like just graduating college, about to start med school. I found a lump in my breast. So I've wow. been like breast conscious forever and ever. And it's, I don't, that's a whole other podcast about that. But, <laughs> but so, but, and when I found this lump, because I had known my breast so intimately because I examined them every month, it was like the size of a pebble, like less oh than gosh. the size of a pea when I found it. And it was like growing fairly quickly. Um, it was like a pea by the time I could like bring it to medical attention because I was graduating college, transitioning home for the summer and then moving back to New York to start med school. And so like it went from this pebble to a pea. And then by the time like I got into the care of a surgeon, it was like the size of a marble. Um, but I was able to find that little grainy irregular pebble because I knew my breast so well. So you examine your breast every month and you try to do it at the same time every month. So for younger women, if you're still experiencing your menstrual period, then you do it three to five days after your period. If you don't have a menstrual period for whatever reason, um, or you're like postmenopausal, then you just do it the first of the month. So everybody like in the breast cancer community always says, feel it on the first. So you just feel your breast on the first. So um, there's several different ways that you can examine the breast, but really you're using like the pad of your three fingers um, and you're going to go in like small circular motions, like maybe like if you were going around the, the circumference of a quarter um, and you go with light touch, like moderate touch and then deep touch because you want to go through like, is it on the surface? Is it kind of in the middle or is it deep in the breast tissue? And you can either go, like, start either from the outside and work your way in, like going in a circular motion to the nipple, or you can kind of go, like, up and down, almost like examining in the breast in, like, strips or stripes. Or you can examine, like, the breast, like, if you think about it, like a clock, like, kind of divide it in wedges and then examine the areas of the different wedges. Um, but one thing also to be mindful of is that our breast tissue extends into our armpits. So you want to examine the armpits as well, because if you have pain, swelling, lumps or bumps in the armpits, that could also be a sign of breast cancer or breast disease. Wow, I never knew that one. Yeah. Yep. Wow. And so as far as like ages of routine screening, if your self-breast exams or your annual clinical breast exams with your primary doctor or your OBGYN, um, if those don't bring anything to someone's attention, then for women of color, black women, we should get screened at like 35, like at the very least get like a baseline um, mammogram because we get breast cancer younger than our white and Hispanic counterparts. And we tend to have more aggressive breast cancer, and we tend to do worse, even with the same stage of disease um, as our white and Hispanic counterparts. So we're more likely to die from breast cancer um, than white women. And that is like regardless of stage at the time of the diagnosis. So we often also get diagnosed much later because we either are not examining our breasts, so we don't, we aren't aware of the disease until it becomes to the point where it's undeniable that something is wrong, or even if we get detected on early 
screening, sometimes we put off or delay treatment. Um, and then there's other factors which really we can't explain why we do worse. So um, we should start our screening, at least get a baseline mammogram at 35. And the general rule is um, annually between 40 and 55. And then at the age 55, you can decide do you want to go every year for a memo or do you want to go every other year? Um, but that screening can vary depending on what your family history is. So, you know, we as a people, we tend not to talk about what happened to grandma or great grandma or auntie so-and-so, but we really need to have those conversations. So you need to know, does breast cancer run in your family? Does other hormone-related cancers run in your family? So like ovarian cancer is hormone-driven. So if a lot of women in your family have risk have ovarian cancer, then you're at high risk for ovarian cancer as well as breast cancer. If um, a lot of men in your family have prostate cancer, again, that's a hormone-driven cancer. So that would place you at risk for breast cancer. So that's something you need to know as well. And especially if a man in your family had breast cancer, then you really are at high risk um, for breast cancer as a woman. So um, just like as a side note and how those kind of risk factors and historical things relate to me, both my father and my grandfather had prostate cancer. Um, so that was a breast cancer risk factor for me and something to, that should have been taken into consideration, um, you know, with my screening and workup and whatever. But I was screened very aggressively because I found a lump on self-breast exam and there was concerning imaging and concerning findings when it was biopsied. So, um, but you have to know your breasts, you have to examine them to bring them to your doctor's attention. So 40% of breast cancers are initially found on either self-breast examination or clinical breast exams. So those exams are really crucial, especially in younger women because you're not someone who's getting that annual screening mammogram. So you really have to be breast conscious to bring anything to your doctor's attention. Yes. And I know for me, my OB, she, um, she will check my breast after my pap. And I don't know if it really mm-hmm. does that, but she actually does that as well. Yeah. So um, OBs always do it. Um, and it's interesting. So when I'm like wearing my internal medicine hat, because I do have some patients that are primary care, when it's time for annual exams for my female patients, when I examine their breasts, a lot of them are like, wow, my other primary doctor didn't examine my breasts. And I'm like, well, that's weird. You know, it's like part of your annual exam. Um, But I think for young women, a lot of doctors might assume if you're seeing OBGYN, then the OBGYN is doing it. But I just, I'm not willing to leave that, you know, to chance for somebody. Um, and maybe your OBGYN examined your breast six months ago. Well, another six months have passed and something could change. Or maybe, you, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe you don't do it regularly. And so you don't notice something that's different from one side to the other. Um, and so if I pick that up, then, and I have like picked up lots of lumps and different sense, like changes in density doing clinical breast exams on patients that they didn't really notice. So, you know, we have to do due diligence for ourselves. Our providers have to do due diligence for what is, um, expected of them, but it like the ball isn't in any one person's court like I couldn't leave it solely up to my physician to examine my breast and you know find out figure out what's going on and be my sole source of surveillance for my breast health but also as a physician like I can't assume that my patients are examining their breasts every single month or that they're current with their OBGYN and that somebody else did it but you know, clinical breast exam at least once a year, but, you know, if your OBGYN does it and your 
primary care doctor does it, great. That's been two points of surveillance. And then, of course, any imaging that's recommended or suggested um, should be done and should be done consistently. So at the same time every year because you don't want to get off track. And then also at the same place. So you don't want to go get a mammogram at one hospital and then go get it somewhere else next year because they don't have anything to compare it to. You want to go to the same place all the time to get your breast imaging so that they can compare old to new. Because that's the easiest way to figure out, okay, is something going on? You can say, okay, that looks a little dense, but oh, look, it was there last year. It looks exactly the same. Or that looks a little dense and it wasn't there last year. We need to pursue this further. Yes, those are really good tips. So uh, mamas, I hope you guys are taking notes. And if you haven't scheduled your annual exam, get that done. <laughs> like, yeah, so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And don't be nervous about it. Like a lot of I hear a lot of women say, Oh, my God, mammograms are so terrible. They're so painful. They're so this, they're so that. And I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, my God, it's completely comfortable. It's not. But it is not so uncomfortable that it's worth risking your life and your health and your well-being for, you know, especially not if it can detect an early cancer, something that could be resolved very simply by maybe just taking out the lesion and you're done or taking out the lesion and, you know, doing radiation and possibly sparing you chemotherapy if it's really, really early on and it's not aggressive disease. Um, but, you know, early detection gives the most likelihood of cure. So don't let anybody convince you that a mammogram is this horrible thing because it's, it's not. It's like slightly uncomfortable for less than a minute and you go on with your life. Yes. So I guess a one minute of like pain for your I guess sanity and just assurance uh -huh. that everything is yep. okay like just yes. one minute okay <laughs> yep like peace of mind is such a big deal like I've even had women say I'm just afraid they'll find something and I'm like okay but if they find something they can address it but if they don't find anything you have the peace of mind that there's nothing there and you're good for another year you know right so <laughs> So yeah. it's like a small amount of discomfort for a great relief or for life-saving information, like right. whatever it is that you get from it. Like for me, it's a, a, a win no matter what. Right. I totally agree. So Dr. Alexia, I have one other question and sure. is, what is the most valuable lesson that breast cancer has taught you thus far? Hmm. What? So nobody's ever asked me that. That's a good one. <laughs> um, I would say that it is okay to need help and it is okay to like be vulnerable. Like I am someone who just never let myself be vulnerable. I was like someone, if you had asked me to describe myself before breast cancer, I would have been like, I am you know, I would have told you I'm a doctor, I'm a mother, and I probably would have been like, and I am fiercely independent. Like, I was so proud of not needing too much help for things. Like, I'm not going to say, oh, I'm just, I'm a single mother, and I don't ever, ever call on anybody. No, I had plan A through E. But that was of my own free will to, like, have all of those people on call, on standby to have my back or whatever. But breast cancer has truly allowed me to be vulnerable and truly allowed me to be in a position where it just felt okay to need help, to ask for help, and to receive it. Um, and so, you know, if you need help with anything, and it doesn't have to be cancer, it could be, you know, anything as it relates to your child or your children, like, you know, it just never even crossed my mind that I could ask somebody to take my kids to dance class for me, or I could ask somebody to take my kid to baton, you know? 
Um, or that I could say, you know what, I have breast cancer, I'm having this big crazy surgery, and I really don't want this to rock Kennedy's world any more than it has to. Suzanne, or Suzanne's my baby, so I'm like, Suzanne, could you do me a favor and just grab Ken off the, from aftercare for me, take her home, get her dressed, and take her to the baton. I don't want her to miss the baton just because I'm having surgery today. Like, I want her day to continue as planned. She knows I'm having surgery, and she'll see me in the hospital tomorrow when I'm, like, awake and not under the influence of anesthesia. So it is okay to be vulnerable, and it is okay to ask for help. It's okay to need help. It's okay to receive help. Like, that's been such a huge lesson for me um, and such, um, it's been a blessing and it's been like a huge relief. Yes. And I like that you have um, started to, you know, put yourself at the top of your to-do list and realizing that, Uh okay, like, you know, Kennedy is going to be okay. Cause you know, oftentimes a lot of the moms that I talk to, um, they feel like, Oh, well, they just need to focus on their kid and they don't focus on themselves. And it's like, okay, I get it. You know, you want to be the best for your child. You want to be there and do what you need to do. But like you said earlier, if you're not pouring into yourself, then what do you have to pour into your kid? Uh Yeah. And you have to teach your kids self-care as well. Um, I have become very intentional about teaching that to Kennedy. And, you know, self-care looks like different things for everybody. You Mm -hmm. know, some, some for me, like for me, um, it was exercise and, you know, for me, I don't want to go to the gym. I'm not going to be at the Planet Fitness or the LA Fitness or anything like that. I don't want anybody to see me exercise. And in fact, Kennedy is the only person allowed to see me exercise. So, you know, I would work out and let her work out with me or watch me work out um, and explain to her, like, you have to exercise. You have to move. This is good for your body. This is good for your health. Um, Allowing her to cook with me and not just to teach her to cook, but also like we're going to eat a healthy and delicious meal. We're going to sit at the table. We're going to enjoy our food. We're going to like what we eat, but it's also going to be healthy and nutritious. Mommy's going to take a bubble bath. And, you know, she gets very into her bubble bath. And, um, like, I give her massages. She'll massage my back for me. Um, or I'll treat myself and tell her, like, listen, I'm going to the spa with my friends. Like, mommy needs a moment to relax and unwind and take care of herself or if I go to the nail salon I'll take her with me and you know and I say like listen this is not about having fancy nails this is about taking a moment to relax this is about taking a moment to like unwind not have to work not have to think or do anything for anybody else like just to do something nice for yourself because you work hard, you earn money, and you can do something special for you sometime, you know? Um, So I try to model self-care for her because I don't want her to be like I once was where I was at the bottom of my own totem pole and I put everything and everybody above me and I was worn out and I looked worn out and I was unhappy and I looked unhappy and I projected all of that unhappiness to people around me and I don't want to be that person and I don't want to raise her to be that kind of mother I don't want to raise her to be that kind of wife I don't want to raise her to be um that kind of either employee or entrepreneur or career woman or whatever it is like you're first you take care of you you do the best that you can in all of the things that you're doing um you love people you treat people kindly and respectfully um, you love on those that are there to love you and that's that but you can't be at the bottom of your own list yes I totally agree so Dr. Alexia thank you so much for taking out your time to chat with me and give us some very helpful information I know that a lot of the ladies will um, find this information helpful just like I did and be able to go and schedule those mammograms and be aware and start taking time out for themselves. I'm probably sure that they are going to hear this and be like, wow, like that's me. I need to do this. 
Um, and I need to stop making excuses, you know, because that's another mm-hmm. um, issue that we have as well. So let everybody know um, where they can find you and connect with you. And then if you have any resources that you would like to share, please do so. Okay. So um, once again, I'm Dr. Alexia. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dr. Alexia. So it's D-R-A-L-E-X-E-A. Um, I, one thing I do want to put out there is, um, a book that I'm working on. I'm working on two books, but the first book will be released, um, in early November. Um, we'll be doing a telesummit. So the book is called As the Wind Blows, and it's volume two of this book. And so it's me and six other women, um, who are each writing a chapter sharing, um, our stories of how we have overcome different situations um, through our faith. So I'll be sharing more about my breast cancer story in my chapter. Um, So I'll be sharing about that on all my social media accounts. So look out for that. And then I'm writing my own book as well um, for women of color dealing with um, breast cancer, like how to navigate the diagnosis, the treatment, and life after breast cancer. So I expect that to be out early next year so oh my gosh, um, that's so awesome you'll have to keep me yeah in the so i can share absolutely absolutely i will um and thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with your audience thank you for your time and thank you for your platform like you are up to some amazing things oh thank um, you so, so i'm much. grateful yeah i'm grateful that um you have taken this on and that you have chosen to be a voice for single moms that's amazing Yes. And again, thank you so much. I just really appreciate it. I will link all of your um, social media in the show notes so that way they can easily click on the links and be taken right there. Awesome. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Dr. Alexia was just very transparent about her journey and shared a lot of great tips. So if you enjoyed it, Please leave us a review. Let us know what you thought. You can do this on Apple Podcasts. You can leave a comment on SoundCloud or simply DM me and let me know what you thought. If you are not subscribed, what are you waiting on? Take a moment to get subscribed so that you never miss an episode and you always receive your notifications. You can connect with me over on Instagram at Single Black Motherhood, Facebook single black motherhood and then you can also check out the website at singleblackmotherhood.com thank you guys so much for tuning in i appreciate it until next week talk to you guys later bye